0: Okay, shall we get started here? Are we ready to move into some time of reading scripture, exploring God's word, have some time here? Um, Before we start, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, I don't know um, if you follow that, but all over the world today, people are praying for the persecuted church. And Voice of the Martyrs is an organization that really um, supports those people in prayer for that. And uh, we work with World Outreach International. In the last few days, I've been getting prayer requests specifically for the persecuted church, um, specifically in India, Nepal, Bengali. And then, um, and then this one came in that was heartbreaking to me. Just a woman, a field worker in Africa with world outreach along with two new believers. Um, they've been forcibly removed. So I don't know if that means kidnapped. I don't know, hostage. I don't know quite what that means but they've been forcibly removed. And people haven't been able to find them yet. So it's a woman and two young, new uh, woman believers. And so we just want to take a minute and pray for our world outreach partners and for the church at large. There is an enemy that resists, you know, and uses different techniques all over the world to keep the gospel from being preached. And um, some places it's violence, some places it's just depression and despair. There's all sorts of ways the enemy tries to keep the good news and the joy of the Lord from getting out there. And so we want to pray and ask God for mercy and protection from that. So Lord, right now in Jesus name, we pray for the persecuted church We pray specifically um, even for this world outreach field worker in Africa and these two young women who want to follow Jesus and there's resistance to that. We pray that they would be found, that they would be protected, that they'd be healthy and whole. And Lord, we hear stories all the time of people who see Isa. Jesus, that's how they say it often in other parts of the world. That's how they say your name. I pray that the people who um, are persecuting your people, they'd have a Saul experience where they'd see you, Jesus. They would see Isa and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. In fact, I'm going to preach the good news. And so, Lord, I just pray for that all over the world, that you would encourage your believers, that you would encourage us even here in the U.S. when we feel discouraged, when we feel um, like this isn't making sense or whatever, that you would bring encouragement to us and that we would, all of us would just withstand the attacks of the enemy to keep us from preaching the good news of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was um, so encouraged this morning. I was a little discouraged about something yesterday. And this morning, someone just, just said, I was, I feel like five o'clock yesterday you were doing this. And I was like, that's exactly what I was doing. And it was a word of knowledge that brought encouragement to me. I'm like, how incredible is the Holy Spirit to bring us encouragement when we need it? Amen. So we're getting into the book of James, we're going to go into chapter two today, and we're exploring themes in the book of James so we're not necessarily going chronologically, so if you brought your Bible today open it to chapter two, but before we start that I want to tell you a story about one of America's founding fathers Thomas Jefferson. When he was 77, he created a manuscript titled, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted textually from the gospels. And so what he did is using several Bible texts, if we could get the next screen, he literally cut his Bible in pieces to find Jesus's teachings alone. Then he compiled them in chronological order in his own manuscript. So he took all of these little pieces and put them and he cut out his Bible, but here's the deal. It eventually became became known as the Jefferson Bible. It's an 84-page Bible that excludes all miracles by Jesus, most mentions of the supernatural, and anything in all four gospels that referred to the resurrection, and passages that portray Jesus as divine. He just cut them out of the book. His goal was to clarify Jesus's teachings, which he believed provided the most sublime and benevolent code of morals, which has ever been offered to man. Should I use a different microphone for that? Do you guys hear that? So I don't know if we can work on that a little bit. (laughs) Not today. Hey, we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep going. So, Jefferson had this idea of having just the benevolent codes and morals that have ever been offered to humankind. Now, here in this group of listeners, a bunch of us are followers of Jesus. We've seen Jesus actively at work in our lives. So, it's easy for us to be totally shocked by what Jefferson did and say, No way, Jefferson, you didn't get it. (laughs) Jesus is way more than a set of moral codes offered to humanity. Come on, Jefferson, you can't separate what Jesus taught from what Jesus did and who He was and is, active in our lives today's. Today, Jesus' words matched Jesus' actions. His philosophies and I can't say it His philosophies and morals and beliefs are evident in who Jesus was and how he interacted with people way back then and even now today, speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. You cannot separate the power and the resurrection and the lived life of Jesus from his teachings and beliefs, right? Jesus lived a life that was congruent. He walked the walk, he talked the talk. So we can be super critical of Jefferson, but if we're honest, we're tempted to do the same thing. We cut and paste our belief and faith and our actions and deeds and patterns that make the most sense to us. Soon enough, I have the 84-page Sarah Bible. There's Jefferson one and the Sarah one. Remember in our introduction to this wisdom series in the book of James, we talked about James being concerned with wholeness and integrity in our faith He didn't want the church to live a fractured and compartmentalized faith. Remember in James 1.22 when he says, dear brothers and sisters, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. We don't want to just be fooling ourselves. The message of James emphasizes God's heart that we as followers live wholeheartedly in a way that matches our beliefs. So it's not just in our head. It's not just in our heart. It's in our hands and our feet. Think about a time when you've been listening to some beautiful music. We, we have... Um, cello players and drummers and pianists here today. But think about a time you've been listening to beautiful music and you're just humming along and all of a sudden a bad note is hit. And it's just like, oh, that's dissonant. Or our microphones blitz out and make some sound or distracting sound and we go, oh, you know, this doesn't work. There's dissonance in this melody and this rhythm we're listening to. And we cringe and then we all recover and keep going. That's a little bit what happens when belief and actions don't match and don't flow together. God wants our belief to be congruent with our actions. He doesn't want us fooled or self-deceived. It's not good for us. It's not good for the world. Let's read James 2:14 through26, 12 verses here, OK? What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. Ah, oh, Wouldn't that be wonderful? I think I am. <laughs> So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Now, for some of us, for those of us who might have been raised in the Protestant tradition, James' words can sometimes be confusing, especially when he says we are shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. Those words can seem contrary to the words we've heard Paul speak to the Ephesians and the Romans, especially like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, where it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, not by a work so that no one can boast. We know this is true. And then Romans 10.10, 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. We know that it's a change of heart and belief that opens up life opens us up to new life in Christ. And we are unbelievably thankful that we are saved from sin, rejection, evil, bondage, shame, condemnation. We're saved from all of that by grace alone, God's goodness. We know there's nothing in our human effort that we can do to earn or work for our salvation. Jesus paid for it at the cross. We do not need to punish ourselves or pay for ourselves any longer. Now, there was a time in church history, in the Catholic tradition in the Middle Ages, maybe you're familiar with this from doing schoolwork or your church tradition, but there was a time when priests would sell this thing called indulgences. They were like get out of jail free passes for the Middle Ages. (laughs) If you were able to get an indulgence, the punishment of your sins could be reduced. In order to get this pass, You had to perform some action to receive it, like a special prayer, maybe make a pilgrimage somewhere, maybe perform some sort of good work or favor. By the time of the Reformation in the 1500s, the process had been streamlined. All you had to do was buy an indulgence. If you had money, you just bought that pass. No faith required. Imagine if you were poor and you couldn't afford that indulgence or that pass. Or imagine if you were rich but cruel and evil and you could easily just buy a pass. Belief wasn't necessary, no faith required. What does this say about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? Was it worth nothing? Did it pay for nothing? 1 Peter 1 18 through 19 says, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors but you were bought with the precious blood of christ a lamb without blemish or defect jesus took care of it right hallelujah soon a young monk named martin luther came along the scene and he resisted the catholic tradition He said, this is wrong. You cannot buy salvation with money or with works. Faith cannot be reduced to a transaction, a formula, a ritual performed. Martin Luther found freedom in Paul's teachings on grace. And he told everyone about the unconditional good news of the gospel and brought others into freedom as well. However, luther thought the book of james was problematic he didn't like it and he didn't even think it should be included isn't that interesting he's like this is too confusing i just want to pause for a minute and say it's okay to wrestle with scripture and tradition and compare and contrast and say like why did james say this and why did paul say that and how does it work out That process is so good for us because it takes us back to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And we say, Holy Spirit, how does this work in my life? What do you want me to do? Where do I need to change my faith walk? You read it in the Psalms. When the Psalms are wrestling, the Psalmists are wrestling with their expectation of what God is doing and what they know and their experience. And they're like, God, where are you? Two thirds of the Psalms are lament, two thirds. So it's okay to do that. Jesus did it with the disciples when he was helping them unravel what they knew from the law and the prophets and apply what the news he was bringing, the good news he was bringing. So the book of James highlights that faith without works is dead and does us no good. And Paul, in his writing, highlights that works don't save us. And in the whole of these scriptures, we read and understand that we need both belief and action. We both we need both a life of faith that is whole, not fractured, not dissonant, not cut and pasted. We need it all. So James asks us, I'm going to read the message version. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half starved and say, good morning friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk off without providing so much As a coat or a cup of soup where does that get you isn't it obvious that god talk without god acts is outrageous nonsense (laughs) i love that isn't it obvious this is outrageous nonsense what good is your faith let's have the courage to ask that question it's not a condemning question it's not a judgment there's no condemnation in christ It's just an honest question. Do I, do we live a compartmentalized, cut and paste kind of faith? In Luke 19, a story is recorded about a young official, a local official who comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to deserve eternal life? And in Luke 19, 19 through 20, it says, Corky's, you have the next one? Jesus says, hold on, maybe we have a delay. I'm just going to keep going. You know the commandments, don't you? No illicit sex, no killing, no stealing, no lying. Honor your father and mother. He said, I've kept them all for as long as I can Remember? And when Jesus hears this, he says, then there's only one thing left to do. Sell everything you own and give it away to the poor. You will have riches in heaven. Then come, follow me. This was, a very, this was the last thing the official expected to hear. He was very rich and became terribly sad. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. It was a cut and paste faith. I believe in God, but there are some things I'm holding on to and I'm not about to let go of. He had belief in God, but how did it help him? How, how does it help us when we hold on to things? James 2, 19 through 20, here's an interesting passage. James is constantly referring to the Old Testament in ways that we might not realize because we're not Jewish. We haven't been raised in that tradition. But he's referring back to, the, to a prayer called the Shema. See if you can hear it in here. James 2, 19 through 20 says, you say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you, even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish, can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? James is speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters and saying, remember the, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Was a popular prayer. It was a prayer that was written on their hearts and on their minds and in their doorways. They would pray this prayer all the time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the second part of the scripture is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Like Stanley alluded to this morning, or he didn't allude to it. He said it. It's all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. So there's belief in one God but then there's action in response. Love follows belief, all the heart, all soul, all strength kind of love. Jesus said it in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, we read, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. When you believe in God and love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, what flows naturally next is loving your neighbor. Action flows next. The book of James parallels Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us how to love God, how to love one another. And at the conclusion of it, he says this. Many scholars believe the James 2 passage we just read refers directly to these verses in Matthew 7. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Last week, we gathered in small groups and prayed for one another to have courage to be witnesses for Jesus. And I know that that was a really powerful time for some of us because sometimes it's hard to live wholeheartedly in word and action in belief and heart and in reality, living it out in daily life. But it was a beautiful time of prayer. We need encouragement to be courageous, (laughs) don't we? It takes courage to hear Jesus's words and put them into practice. It takes courage to believe that Jesus is the resurrected, miraculous one, not just a code of morals that has been offered to humanity. Jesus is more than that. And it takes courage to believe and put trust in that. It takes courage to not just cut and paste verses that make sense to us but to wrestle with the whole of scripture, to wrestle with our faith and to wrestle with faith in action. How do we do this? It's not easy, is it? It's not easy, but we can do it because of God in us. It takes courage to believe in one God and to love God and others, but we can do it. God's grace and power is with us. At the end of that James 2 passage that we read, he talks about Abraham first, right? Abraham, the father of our faith. We're all sons and daughters and children of Abraham, we say, because we've been adopted into this family. Abraham, the friend of God. Abraham, who um, believed God for the promise. We know a lot about Abraham's story. He's a hero of faith. But James finishes the section, not with Abraham, the father of the Jewish tradition, but with Rahab, a prostitute from Jericho. I love it. (laughs) Rahab was a prostitute who lived in a foreign city named Jericho. I don't want to tell the whole story right now. But God tells his people to go and take the city of Jericho. And Rahab, at great risk to herself, helps God's people in this situation. James says this, he says, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. She helped him. She helped these messengers. She helped some spies. We don't know hardly anything about Rahab. We don't know her full story or how she ended up in such a challenging place. Was she sold into prostitution as a child? Was her family so destitute that she had no other way of surviving? Was she seeking security, control? We have no idea. What we know is that she was a foreigner to God's people, surviving by difficult means. But she'd heard of God from a distance, believed in this God, and her actions followed her belief. This is what James is highlighting. She would one day be counted in the Messiah's family and named in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. Isn't that amazing? Beth Moore says this about Rahab in her study on James. God can change what people do. He can change behavioral patterns that have been in play for decades. He can change what we do to cope, to find comfort, to survive conflict, to count. I really like that list right there. The things we do to cope, to find comfort, to survive conflict, and to count. Those are the places God wants to touch in our lives. Rahab had done the same old thing for years. And then she did something new. She believed God and acted on it. I'd like to conclude today just with a prayer. If you all want to stand, let's stand. I want to pray today that we'd have courage, like James tells us to, to not just have faith that's up here, but faith that's in our extremities, every bit of us, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. Lord Jesus, help us be a courageous people. Give us grace because of what you've done in the cross, because of what you've done. You, you did it all, but there's nothing else we have to do. You bought us, you purchased us. We don't have to punish ourselves anymore. We don't have to work hard. But Lord, we want your your life to be worked out in us. Not just in our head and in our hearts, but in our whole life. We want you to touch the places where we're coping, touch the places where we're surviving, touch the places where um, just all those places, where we're trying to find comfort, where we're trying to survive conflict, where we're trying to count. Come in, Lord, and and we put our trust in you. We put our belief in you, and we trust you to speak to us and give us the courage to act on it today. Forgive us, God, for the times we have cut and paste faith. Give us the courage to take it all and wrestle with it and wrestle through it. In Jesus' name, amen.